Pearson Ravitz story begins with Dr. Stephanie Pearson, a passionate OBGYN at the height of her career. But when a shoulder injury struck during a precipitous delivery, her dreams were shattered, leaving her unable to practice medicine. Determined to make a difference, Dr. Pearson became an advocate for her peers, guiding them through the complex disability process. Alongside insurance expert Scott Ravitz, Dr. Pearson founded Pearson Ravitz, a company determined to approach insurance differently. Together, they set their mission to educate and empower physicians to protect their most valuable asset, their income, and the most important people in their life, their family. Today, Pearson Ravitz serves the medical community in all 50 states. At Pearson Ravitz, they understand the unique concerns of physicians. Physician-founded and physician-focused, Pearson Ravitz builds human connections before they create quotes. Life can change in an instant. It's hard to imagine that a sudden illness or injury could leave you and your family in a devastating financial situation. But with little planning and guidance, you can prepare for every possibility. Visit PearsonRavitz.com to schedule your consultation with a Pearson Ravitz advisor. Hey, this is Brad Block, host of The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This is a personal and professional development podcast for physicians where we have experts on the show that try to teach us everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. What is the financial freedom formula for physicians? Boy, I love that iteration. And how can we use that formula to pay less in taxes? Find out on today's episode. Dave Denniston, I'm a longtime fan, and you are, you, I think you started podcasting even before me. So I've been listening to you for a long time. And I'm so glad to finally have you on the podcast. Oh, Brad, no, thank you. No, it's my pleasure. You know, it's fun connecting with people like you that are out there doing it, helping doctors. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. So the first question is just an introduction to the audience who in the unlikely chance that they're not they're not familiar with you uh tell us about your practice and your podcast yeah yeah absolutely so my practice actually have a few different businesses one of them being financial planning and so my financial planning practice we do assets under management hourly consulting with physicians and many other people on tax planning investments real estate. I personally do a lot of land flipping. So a lot of people consult with me on how to flip vacant land. Really, I got into this space through podcasting, which has been a wonderful journey. I got into it because of my daughter who was born less than a pound when she came into this world and really wanted to get back to doctors. And so that's why I ended up writing a couple books and having the podcast, The Freedom Formula, for physicians now for like eight or nine years. It's been a while since I've been doing this. So what is the freedom formula for physicians? Is it like PVNRT? Does it involve Planck's constant or the speed of light? You know, what is the freedom formula? It's nothing super complicated, honestly, Brad. It's really, really what I would define as several things. Number one, getting to be debt free is a huge part of the formula. Number two, really having a strategic plan. We might talk about this a little bit later, but you know, are you doing piles of cash mentality? Are you creating streams of income? Or are you doing bull? And then finally, finding ways to lower your taxes. So those are really, to me, the three parts of being financially free with doing it. So when you say debt-free, if I've got my house and I've got like a really low interest rate, because some of the listeners like took advantage when interest rates were really low, they refinanced, they've got these really low. Is even that 
bad or do you mean just like high interest rate, student loans, high interest rate, credit card debt, that that type of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think of it, Brad, it's being in different orders of things where certainly what you just said, the house is usually like the last possible thing that we go for. But in the formula, yeah, I absolutely believe that by the time that you step away and you're retired, you should have no more consumer debt at all, including the house. But obviously, you want to start out with the stuff that is sucking you down. For a lot of people, it's car loans. For a lot of people, it's student For a lot of people, it's they might have a HELOC on their house that now they're paying a lot more on that than they are their primary mortgage. You know, all of that kind of stuff that we got to get rid of. So you have less obligations and less things weighing you down. But you are not referring to leveraging debt for in for like cash flow and income, right? That's a different type of debt. Your consumer for you, there's consumer debt and then there's investment debt. And those are completely different buckets. Absolutely. So just to give you a personal example for me, the way I run my life, I try and live this out as best I can to show the way. Do as I say, not as I do. Right. right. That's not happening. Either. I just turned 42 last month. I'm not 60 by any means, but I'm not 20 in my 20s anymore either. And so at the point my wife and I are at, we have no car loans, no student debt. We have no consumer debt whatsoever. As a matter of fact, I was talking with my 17-year-old daughter last night about she wanted to get a new iPhone, buying it in cash, you know, and not financing the thing. And then our house, we only have $100,000 left on our mortgage. As a matter of fact, I'm planning on paying that off this year. But I also have business debt which is separate than my personal life. So in my land flipping business, I use leverage all the time. And I may even dip into a home equity line of credit down the road to tap into buying multifamily or self-storage or something like that. But really that business debt, it's buying me assets and cash flow. It's not something that I am consuming that depreciates or literally has no investment value of any sort. Got it. Got it. So when we're thinking about these things, it's not all debt is bad. It's consumer debt is less favorable. I don't like thinking of things as good or bad, right? Nothing's good or bad. It's all shades of gray. Absolutely. I mean, different strokes for different folks, right? And you can make the case, you know, hey, do 0% on a car or whatever. But really, in most cases, you end up paying more for that because you're buying the brand new thing versus buying a used car or something else. Yeah. I mean, for me and my own, the way that my brain works one, I need to hide as much money for myself as I can. Otherwise, I'm going to spend it. And then that's another thing. Like, yes, you can very easily justify a car that has monthly payments because you're like, I can afford those payments. But if you're paying for it with cash, even if it's at a low interest rate, then you're really making sure you can really afford it. And then it's really worth that big hit to your bank account. So the mental gymnastics of justifying the monthly payments are easier than the the lump sum. So it's just a way of kind of tricking myself into doing the financially responsible thing. We don't, Brad, it brings me to something that I see a lot of people do and they justify that they will go and get a car payment, right? To some sort of consumer debt. And then they'll buy a house or a new apartment building or whatever. And they'll use that cash flow to pay that consumer thing. For me personally, in kind of the freedom formula, I don't think that should be part of it because stuff happens. You know, you can have tenants that aren't paying you. And then now you have a double burden of stuff going on. So I really recommend having a simple lifestyle, but one that is for you. I'm not here to tell you you need to retire by the time you're 45, but enjoy life, but just be smart with your money. 
we've talked about that on other podcasts where just it's important to establish what your values are and what's important to you and being very intentional about your spending. And so making sure that this is in line with your values and listen, have, having a super fancy car is one of your values. Then go live your life. If it really makes you happy, but you know, hedonic adaptation at all, it's unlikely to make you happy for very long. So you said that one of your many hats, one of the things that you do in addition to the land flipping that you just mentioned is you're a financial advisor, right? That's, that's where the freedom formula for physicians was born out of. A few years ago, we had a financial advisor on and talking about how he does fee only. And you had mentioned that you do, you bill by assets under management. You do some fee only consulting, but also do assets under management. First, can you just briefly explain to the audience what the difference between the two is? And second, explain why you have decided to bill assets under management. Yeah, yeah. It's a great question, Brad. So really, these two different things, and you'll hear people say fee only, you'll hear people say different terms. There's different registered investment advisors out there that'll throw out a plethora of different financial lingo at you. But basically, for those that aren't familiar, there's really three primary ways that advisors get paid. One we didn't mention, which is commission. So there's a lot of advisors out there that are trying to sell you an annuity or life insurance or disability insurance or a real estate program, or I've seen equipment leasing stuff. Financial advisors can throw all kinds of things at you, which often will pay them a commission. Now, there are exceptions to that, but most of the people out there, they'll help seminars and, hey, it's sponsored by Allianz or Jackson National or whatever insurance company you can think of that's the flavor of the day that's paying for the seminar that the advisor is having. They are there to sell you that and the advisor might be an RIA, but they are incentivized to sell you that crap more frequently than not. And so that's one way advisors get paid. Another way advisors get paid, which commission, for example, I do from time to time, someone wants a term life insurance policy, I'll get it for them. Like of my practice, that's like a half a percent of my revenue of doing something like that. So I never wanted to shut off the option because I don't want someone to sell my clients a pile of crap. So, you know, if we're going to do it, I'm going to shop it out and find you the best possible deal. But it's very, very rare that I do those kinds of things. Now, another way that advisors get paid is assets under management, meaning that the advisor charges a percentage of some sort for the assets that they are managing. Different advisors have different fee schedules and tiers and how they work it. Here's the secret, you guys. To a point, it's negotiable. So you, the advisor might say, hey, my fee is one and a half percent. You could come back and say, you know, that's kind of a little steep. Could you do 1% instead? And if the advisor wants a client and they like you and you like them, more times than not, guess what? They'll say yes. Now, if you come back with saying a quarter percent or something ridiculously low, the advisor is probably going to say no. You know, this, this isn't like haggling for a shirt in Tijuana or something. <laughs> but with the assets under management, as the assets get gathered, the advisor often gets paid more for the more assets that they are managing. Today, you have a lot of robo-advisors and different entities like Charles Schwab and Fidelity and places like that, that have various programs that'll charge you a quarter percent or something like that for assets under management without a actual advisor advising you. 
So the value someone like myself brings for assets under management has to do with going through a financial plan, going through debt, counseling with people, going through taxes and tax returns and finding opportunities and setting up retirement plans and yada, yada, yada. So someone like myself does all those kinds of things, advising someone on their 401k, even if we're not directly managing it, estate planning, all those different kinds of things get involved in the financial planning. That income isn't just from the management, it's also all of the financial planning and you just decide on the fee schedule by agreeing on a percent of assets under management. So it's not... So then under that plan, I just want to challenge that a little bit, right? Because is if you are managing twice the assets of someone, is are you really doing twice the work? Yeah, no. Great question, Brad. So for me personally, the way I'm designing my practice is my goal is to make about $3,000 to $4,000 per client. So if I'm doing assets under management, that's what I'm shooting for. So for example, if my minimum really that I'm wanting to work with clients now on assets under management basis is $300,000. I might take someone, but honestly, a percent and a half is a lot. So they might be better off doing hourly consulting or something instead. But let's say 1% on $300,000. At $500,000, we'll reduce that percentage. So rather than being 1% on $500,000, now we'll make it 0.6 or 0.7% or something yeah. like that. So it's a sliding scale because then when you get to a million or a million and a half and two million, certainly that's going to be more complicated to manage than someone who is 500,000. Although if someone only has 500,000 in only, someone has, wow, I sound awful. If someone has five hundred half a million dollars in assets, which is a ton of money, right? It, honestly, it just depends on where you are in your career. If you're close to retirement, right? Hopefully, especially since it's a physician audience here, you should have significantly more than that. But if someone has a half a million dollars in assets, they might have a more complicated, they might be a more complicated case than someone who has a million dollars in assets because the million dollar person might have no debt anymore and they've already got their ducks in a row. And the half million dollar person has never spoken to a financial advisor or read a book or listened to a podcast. And so it might actually end up being more work for you in that situation. An incredibly difficult situation and require more time when they have a bunch of student loans and all this stuff. So it really depends situation to situation. But my goal as an advisor is to make about $3,000 to $4,000 per client relationship. And so if you're a million dollars, you know, we're looking at 0.3 or 0.4% or something like that. So my fee on the overall thing stays about the same with some room for inflation growth and stuff like that. Hopefully, I'm doing a good job of managing the assets. I could take a pay cut in the event that the market goes down. Now, the other third way, so we talked about commission, we talked about assets under management. The third way is flat fee or hourly. So some people, rather than having a fluctuating rate, which is what happens with assets under management, they might charge a flat fee, like $3,000, $4,000. I've seen some people charge seven or eight or nine or $10,000, depending upon the person. Me personally, there's actually a lot of regulation around that right now. And when I formed my own RIA a year and a half ago, I was advised not to do that because of regulatory pressure on flat fees, which I actually used to do prior. So now I just do hourly consulting. So my hourly rate is $300 an hour. So I don't bill that until after I've delivered the service, which is the problem with flat fee. You haven't actually delivered a service and you're collecting a fee for that in advance. So that's the way I'm doing it. I would actually love to do flat fee. It makes my life a lot easier rather than tracking my hours. 
But for those people that want to do hourly, we call that kind of a done with you service where I am not going to manage the assets for you, but I'll give you advice on it. We can still talk about all of the other stuff, you know, that I mentioned earlier as part of that. So again, different people have different practices, different way of doing things. None of these things, except for someone that is like commission entirely or a half commission is wrong. You know, it's really about finding a person that you trust, that is good at communicating, is good at follow-up, does what they said that they're going to do. And hopefully, you know, is someone that you can go to when you have a question, right? That, hey, what about this? What about that? That's really what financial advisors are for. And frankly, some physicians don't need a financial advisor. You know, the physicians are some of the best and brightest in the world. You guys have dedicated so much of your lives to it. So I'm not going to stand here and say everyone should have a financial advisor because it's not true. Some people have a great handle on it. But if you are the kind of person that you don't really understand it, you don't like it, you would like to learn about it, but you don't want to have to do it, then that's where someone like me comes into the picture. Or just, you know, needs, as you said, need some advice, right? Like you need a tune up. Hey, can you go over my stuff? Make sure I have all my ducks in a row. You make some recommendations and then that's it. And then maybe a couple of years later, I come back to you again. So there's lots of different ways to utilize. And listen, there are a lot of people with all sorts of coaches out there for all aspects of their life. Why not have a, you're not a financial coach, a financial coach who's someone who just like puts a shingle up. You're a financial advisor. So that has that comes with certain regulations, you can only call yourself that in a specific situation. So makes always makes sense to get advice from an expert. And one of the things that you talk about on your show that we really haven't touched upon in my 280 episodes or whatever that I've had on my show is taxes. So I really want to talk a bit about everyone's favorite subject. It's probably the thing they least want to deal with after charting is taxes. What are the some of the ways that you've seen? I know this is a broad question that you've seen physicians overpay in taxes or put a different way, can pay less in taxes. Yeah. I mean, honestly, Brad, to me, the hardest situation to help somebody is where they're W-2. So if you're W-2, you're working at a hospital, we can do some stuff, but honestly, the amount of things we can do is rather limited unless you start a side hustle and you become a business owner of some sort. So For example, let's say you work at a hospital, very typically some of the usual things that someone like me would advise, which I apologize, someone's heard this a thousand times, but I'll say it for the thousand and first time is, of course, putting money in your 403B or 401k. You might have a second retirement plan, like a 457 deferred compensation plan that you could also put money in. So make sure you're checking the box for that if you're W-2. You might have an HSA that you could participate in. One of the best possible programs out there where you put money in and get a tax deduction for it and you can have that money come out tax free later on. So HSAs are awesome. I would say a lot of people, frankly, don't look into all of those things. Sorry, HSA, health savings account for those out there that actually, could you just tell us what that's all about? Just what is a health savings account and what is it and what isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So most people, in their health insurance have a choice. You can use a higher deductible plan or a lower deductible plan. If you choose a lower deductible plan, you can't use an HSA, but if you have health savings account. But if you choose a higher deductible plan, you can choose an HSA. So depending upon the medical insurance you're choosing, you could add that in. And then with that HSA, you're getting money 
socked away with a tax deduction that then you could withdraw either during the year or down the road, whether you go see a doctor, have a surgery, or you need glasses, or you see a dentist. All of those things can come out of your HSA. For many of my clients, I advise them, hey, just leave that money alone unless you have a really big income tax year, right? Hey, use that money that year. So that way it's not coming out of your pocket where it's taxed, use that money where it's tax-free. But if you have a big pile saved for retirement, imagine you have a 401k, many of my clients, a million, two million, three million dollars, you're gonna get taxed on that money in retirement, whereas an HSA, you don't at all, if you're using it for medical-related purposes. But does anything happen to that money at the end of the year? No, it grows in the account. Oh, so you put money into the HSA and it just grows there, but it's kind of like a 503B, right? Where you have to, wait, a four, that's four, a student, three four, three, no, I'm thinking of the student saving for like my kid's college. No, it's not a 529 plan. 529B. So no, 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 but a 529 can only be used for educational purposes. That actually changed. So now up to $30,000 of a 529 plan could be converted to Roth for the kid if the kid doesn't use it during college. Oh, that's interesting. So oversaving for your kids, it becomes less of an issue. I mean, not how many people were worried about oversaving, but really a lot of people, they'll start investing when the kids are really young. It matures a lot. They might have a little extra money. So you can take 30% of that out and put it into a Roth. 30,000. 30,000. Sorry, 30,000. I misunderstood. Oh, okay. That's interesting. My point with that was you can only use it for education. Okay. Less the 30,000. And for the health savings account, you can only use it for health. Now, can you use it for buying like band-aids and oint like ointments or skin creams or does it is it only being used to pay doctors and hospitals? Well, you know, Brad, I've I always try and be honest when I don't know the answer. And I don't know the answer to that. But generally most people use it for doctors or hospitals or even paying medical insurance premiums when you don't have an employer anymore. Those are the most common uses. Some of those other things, I'd have to get back to you on that to see what I could find out. And sometimes we change plans, right? If we're younger and healthier, we might sign up for the high deductible plan. As we get older and have more medical issues, we might switch plans, but that money still stays in there. It's that you can no longer continue putting money in when you have the low deductible plan. Interesting. Okay. I might have to change my plan come the end of the year. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty sweet stuff. What else? Aside from the HSA, I had interrupted you because I wanted you to flesh that out a little more, but what are some other ways in which physicians can cut back on their taxes? I would say if you're W-2 again, getting back to someone that works in a hospital, which is an awful lot of us in this world today with so many private practices getting gobbled up, certainly I would be looking at Things like there's particular kinds of investments that are more tax friendly than others. So, for example, Airbnbs have been very, very tax friendly. Those have been great for people getting tax deductions. And there's some stuff that's sunsetting now this year. Oh, no. We're looking down the barrel of that right now. Yes, sir. There's some oil and gas stuff that some people do in order to get tax deductions. Frankly, I don't really trust that those things as much. I'm just saying it because it is out there where people can use okay. accelerated depreciation and some of this stuff to lower their income. But that's side hustle. That's side. That's not like through your through just like putting money away through like 
a cash balance plan or something like that. You want to maximize what your employer has to offer, which is your retirement plan and your HSA. And that's kind of it. And then you've got other investment avenues. And we've actually covered real estate on other episodes. So we don't need to go into you know depreciation on this per se. But you had mentioned if you do have a side hustle, there are tax advantages to that. So let's say, for instance, you have a side hustle that is unsuccessful. Yeah. For instance, you are a podcaster who sometimes had <laughs> advertising on your podcast or, you know, something similar. And it's really, you know, you're in the red, you're not in the black on it. Can you still, even though there's not much income coming in, can you still use that to your to lower your taxes? Yeah, absolutely. And but there is a point though that the IRS says this is no longer a business, this is a hobby. Is that like a hard red line or is that a big gray zone? It's gray. Just like you were saying earlier, a lot of this stuff is gray, but generally accepted three to four years. So if you have a business that's losing money, now if you're making money, that's a different thing, if it's slightly positive. But let's say you have a business like like ours where we have podcasting and whatever that, that maybe you get a few sponsors on and you're doing it as a passion project, but you are making a little bit of money. Well, now you could do a home office deduction you could write off your cell phone bill, assuming you're using your cell phone for some business purposes. Maybe you're doing some traveling. Maybe you go to a conference and happen to take the family with you on the trip. You know, you can write off some of this stuff. You want to go and have a partner's meeting where you and your wife are talking about the business and you go and write off a weekend trip and you take minutes on that and you keep some history of what you talked about, but you could write off the hotel stay and the meal and that kind of stuff. And none of that is like, if you're taking minutes on it, you're taking notes. That is not something you're submitting to the government. That's something you're keeping with you in case they come knocking. So don't just keep it for like now, just you got to put that in a file and, and keep that indefinitely because they may come knocking later on. Exactly, Brad. Now you hit it right on. Seems like you could be given this advice. You've heard it a few times. <laughs> and then it's certainly if you're making enough money, you mentioned it already earlier, but a cash balance plan is a fantastic way if you're doing it as a side hustle and you're making great money. So for example, I have a client, he is a professor at Harvard making really good money doing that. But on the side, he's also doing legal expert witness consulting. And he's making just as much money from that, doing that part-time as he is from his main gig as being a professor at Harvard. And so in there, we set up a cash balance plan for him where he's socking away close to $200,000 a year tax deductible in that plan. And so as a matter of fact, if he wanted to, he could put away $300,000 or $400,000, but he's buying some real estate, doing some other stuff on top of doing the cash balance plan. For for my suggestion, you know, don't put it all in there, but obviously get a huge tax deduction for putting money in on top of- Diversify, yeah. He's doing the 403BF work still. So that doesn't stop him participating at the 403B that he has through work. As a matter of fact, we were saying, hey, with his wife, maybe we'll add his wife on as an employee and then she can also contribute. The, The company can contribute on her behalf to the cash balance plan. So there's some really cool stuff you can do once you're making money, rather than just a small side hustle that is doing it. For example, I've had someone come on and talk about setting up your own insurance company, which is a specific code around that. I can't remember what that code number is at the top of my head. I would do a cash balance plan before that because it's less expensive. 
But there as well, you could sock away hundreds of thousands of dollars tax deductible in setting up an entity. There's all kinds of interesting things that, that some people do as well. Paying your kids is a common one because then you might have to pay some FICA, but they're not going to owe any, any income taxes. So if you're in a situation like I am and probably you are, Brad, you know, I'm making my income $700,000 a year. Paying my kids, their tax bracket isn't the 50% federal and state that mine are, right? Theirs is going to be close to zero. So you can do that kind of stuff. One guest I had on the podcast a while ago talked about having a guard dog that you hire which is actually your dog, but it has to be a certain size or something. So I've had a lot of guests over the years <laughs> tell me something interesting. Creative. Wow. And there's different levels of aggressiveness, right? You're completely going to get audited, you know, yes. kind of stuff. And then there's plain vanilla things and then there's everything that's gray in the middle. And so playing in the gray, you have to decide how aggressive or not aggressive do you want to be? Because then you're more subject to audits, obviously, the more aggressive you are. It really sounds like when we're billing codes for like office visits. If I'm billing a code for an office visit, I need to be able to explain why I use that code because if I get audited by an insurance company or by Medicare, I need to be able to say this was a 99214 because this was the information that I went over. This is the risk of the person's disorder, right? Like the same thing with taxes. You have to be able to really make a cogent argument for why all of these things makes sense. And the further you get away from what sounds like a reasonable argument, the bigger risk you have. You had mentioned employing the kids. I've, I know some podcasters out there, their kids do the intro and the outro and they pay them for voice work. And you got to find out what the going rate for voice work is, because if they come knocking, you need to be able to say, and I paid them $30,000. Have you heard my kid's voice? <laughs> it is like a velvet. Of course, I'm going to pay top dollar. Like that's what CVS pays for their, actually the voice of CVS has been on this podcast. Oh, really? That's why I use them as an example. Yeah. So, okay. There's one more thing that you explored before that you mentioned in passing before about Airbnbs. And we've talked on the podcast before about short-term rentals and long-term rentals, but there was something specific that I just want to ask about. And that is the tax advantages of short-term versus long-term rentals. Long-term, you know, depreciation rate that, that it's really set up for the laws were written by wealthy landowners, so they're going to make them to their advantage, right? Short-term rentals are kind of a different entity. What are the specific tax advantages of those? Sure. Now, I'm not an expert in this, to be honest. So I'm just going to say what I kind of know, and then I would encourage people, research it, talk to someone that is an expert in this area. I've just studied it to a degree. But basically, versus a long-term rental right now, there are aspects about it you can more quickly depreciate today. That's the reason why it's more favored over a normal long-term rental that you're depreciating over 30 years. So again, I'm not the expert here on this particular subject, but that's what I understand is the basics of it. Is it also that like if you have a significant other, they can use the short-term rental as their quote business, and then you can they can deduct some things that you might not be able to deduct sure. from their expenses? Sure. I mean, that could definitely be a strategy. Like I mentioned before, hiring a spouse, you know, or you could have a spouse end up being a real estate professional that has to meet certain definitions in order to do that. And so if they're spending enough time in it or can justify enough time, then now they can be a real estate professional and you can meet that definition so you can depreciate more of the property to actually create a taxable loss. Okay. And there's one final question before we wrap up. And that's, 
passive income. Because we're talking about passive, because we're talking about taxes, I want to, I think it bears mentioning the term passive income is bandied about. And on your show, you've actually said it's not really passive income, it's residual income. The term passive income is attacked, but it's, you know, if you're getting passive, it's, it's not passive. Passive income is inheritance. Someone died and they just put a bunch of money in your account. That's passive. If you're managing real estate, that's not passive. In fact, the stock market, the stock market's passive because you're just putting money in it and you're letting it go. But really, it's a tax term. And so what is what defines something as passive income per the tax code? Brad, and uh, yeah, you're right. That gets me heated, man. So many people <laughs> sell this passive income thing. No, passive at all. You know, like some things are more passive, but running a business, which is what real estate is, you are running a business that you have to oversee and do is active, all right? Now, by the tax code, what what is passive usually is around self-manage it versus not managing it. So, for example, if you participate in a limited partnership or something where someone has done some fundraising in a private placement, those are passive investments. You're not directly managing it. You're not overseeing it. Someone else is doing the work of running it. Also, we were talking earlier about the definition of a real estate professional. If you're doing something else like being a physician full time, those are actually considered passive losses unless you're doing real estate full time and doctoring a little bit on the side. So that also meets the definition of a passive investor. Two, unless what we were just talking about earlier, you have a spouse that's not a physician and doesn't have a normal job, you know, that person can be considered an active real estate investor. But with regards to like other, for like say non-real estate, passive income, like how is that? I'm not trying to like, understand. Like an Amazon FBA business, for example, someone has an Amazon business where they're selling okay. t-shirts or they're going around to Walmart and Target, finding something on discount and selling it at Amazon that kind of stuff. So that would be an active business. Yeah. So that, that meets the definition of an active business that's different than real estate. Aside from real estate, what else would be considered passive? What else does the government determine as being passive? Uh, it really, it, it has to do with your participation in it. You know, if you're a general partner in something, that is an active investment. If you're a limited partner, then you're passive. That's really gotcha. generally what most people would run into typically. Let's say you own a medical practice, right? And you have a few general partners and that are responsible in case the thing goes bankrupt. And then you have some younger physicians that are limited partners that don't have that same kind of liability. The well, like a surgery center. A lot of us are inventors in surgery centers or, or something similar for gastroenterologists, cardiologists. That's passive income. It can, very much can be. Yeah. Okay. Unless we're on the board, maybe, or something you're like that. GP, Even then, it might just be a GP on it. Yeah. You know, if you're a GP, yeah. a general partner. In those things, then that then it's active. It's not passive anymore. Got it. Is it? What are the tax advantages to this passive income? Well, really, the, it's considered more of like an investment, and so then you're paying capital gains. It depends. Depends on the investment okay. and what it's what it's doing. Some things, if we we're talking about earlier, do depreciate, where maybe you can't take a loss for it, but maybe it also yeah. doesn't create any additional income for you, even though it's creating cash flow. When I say income, I mean taxable income by the government. So that's the advantage of a lot of those things where the depreciation, even though you can't deduct it for losses, it does offset the income to make it a net zero for you 
So that's where that term often will be thrown around from and why it would be tax efficient, even though it's not the most tax efficient that it could be. Got it. Okay. Well, this has been very educational. Thank you very much for all the listeners out there. Where can they find you online and where can they find your podcast? I'm everywhere. I have like 5 billion websites. So daviddeniston.com is my financial planning website. Drfreedompodcast.com is specifically for the podcast, which you, if you look for Freedom Formula for Physicians on iTunes, you can find me there. I have a bunch of land flipping businesses, which like Generation Family Properties, and I have a podcast around that. So lots of great content for people to explore and check out. Definitely, hey, you have any questions, reach out and say, hey, daviddeniston.com. David Denniston, thank you again for your time. Thank you. And now a final word from our sponsor. At Pearson Rabbits, they understand that life can change in an instant. It's hard to imagine that a sudden illness, injury, or catastrophic event could put you and your family in a devastating financial situation. Physician-founded and physician-focused, Pearson Rabbits builds human connections before they create quotes. Visit PearsonRabbits.com today and embark on a journey of safeguarding your future. Thanks for listening. I have a favor to ask. You listened to the episode until the end, which means you either fell asleep or you really liked the episode. So please share it or like it or comment on a social media post or write us a five-star review, something. It would really help me out. And maybe what you learned from this episode can help someone else too. The views expressed in this episode are those of the interviewer and interviewee and don't represent the views of their employer or even their significant other. Even though the magic of podcasting make it sound like I'm talking directly to you. This is not a doctor-patient relationship, and this is not medical advice, or financial advice, or really any advice. Thank us again for listening to The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.